Are you interested in money, trends and behaviours? Welcome to Fin Talking, hosted by Jemima Joseph, Cassandra Crow, and Erica Hall. Just a quick reminder that this podcast provides general information only. It is not intended to provide financial, legal or tax advice. If you need advice, please consult a professional. Now let's get Fin Talking. Cool. Okay, so I'm going to kick things off on a bit of a random fact today. So it's a bit of a random one, so (laughs) stick with us, but... Australians are really patriotic people. So we love our lifestyle, our climate, our landscape. And, you know, as a country, we take that great pride in supporting our local communities. And we have that affinity for Australian produced products like good old Vegemite. And these are all qualities that I think the three of us all love about being Australian. But it does seem like our patriotic ways might have unintentionally spilled over into our investment portfolios with Aussie equities and Australian property representing a disproportionately large component of our portfolios. So Erica, as our behavioural finance savant and expert, um, (laughs) (laughs) you're probably best placed to unpack this home truth for our listeners. Look, um, I don't know if I'm the savant, but I'm certainly (laughs) super passionate about behavioural economics, as you know. (laughs) Um, And look, I think, you know, when you talk about behavioural economics, it's about understanding why people behave the way they do and its impact on their economic decision making. And I think the other thing is we're mostly unaware that we have these biases. And if you think about it, every day we've got to make thousands of decisions. And so we have these, you know, shortcuts to really help us with decision making. And it does provide great efficiency gains in everyday life. And I I was thinking of some examples of this and I was like, um, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, CEO of Facebook, he wears grey T-shirts all the time. And Obama, (laughs) when he was a president, he wore blue suits or grey suits all the time. And when you ask them why they do that, it's an efficiency gain. It's because, you know, they want to actually minimise some of the sort of more superficial decisions so they can focus on the ones that matter. And this is kind of the same in investing. And there's a lot of biases and home bias or familiarity bias is one of many. And really what is familiarity bias? It's where you stick with what is familiar to you. And, you know, this explains why investors tend to favour investing in companies or stocks um, in their own country. And there's been some academic research around this as well to sort of show that, um, you know, we do lack diversification and we do really have this home equity bias in particular. What is really interesting is that then that can lead to some suboptimal outcomes And I was Mm -hmm. thinking about this in relation to, we talked a while back, I think it was in our first episode, and I think, Cassie, you raised Enron um, as as an example. That's right. Yeah. And so if you think about that example, the company went under, employees not only lost their jobs, but what had happened is a large amount of their retirement savings had been invested in Enron stock as well. And so this is a reminder of this familiarity bias can work against you. So um, if you've too concentrated um, in focusing in on what's familiar to you, it can have some pretty devastating unintended consequences like it did for the Enron employees. Mm. You know, I was reading some articles on this and there were like husbands and wives um, that both worked at Enron who also had a majority of their retirement savings plans invested in Enron stock. So not only did they lose their jobs, but they lost a bulk of their retirement savings as well. So familiarity bias working against you. I think 
Erica, that was our trust episode, wasn't it, when we were talking about Enron, I think, coming up uh, in that respect. But, yeah, it's the familiarity of knowing the companies, knowing the things that are around you, the safety of that. I was thinking I'm guilty of whenever I go out to dinner ordering the same thing from my favourite restaurants all the time. (laughs) I'm not particularly adventurous with food. If I find a dish and I really love it, I'll repeatedly reorder it. And in a way, that's great because I'm enjoying that eating that so much, but the reality is I'm not exploring the other interesting things that could be on the menu that I might like even more. So I was thinking, uh, for me, it kind of feels a bit like that. And I think, as you said, Jemima, Australians do have um, such a huge home bias in terms of investing in Australian equities, for example. But I really think when you think about your investments or your retirement or your portfolio, your portfolio should have a passport and that passport should have multiple stamps on it. And from that, I mean, you should invest in different countries around the world. Australia is actually a very small part of uh, all of the countries in the world, if you look at different market indices. Um, And it should be invested in different companies, different sectors. Uh, You should have exposure to different foreign exchange rates and different asset classes. So we talked about equities, but also you know, defensive classes like um, have some cash, have some fixed income, for example. So I think for me, you know, I'm guilty of all of this myself. I love things that are familiar. I love eating the same thing when I go out to dinner. <laughs> but really, your portfolio should absolutely have a passport, in my view. I think there's that fixation that we have on the home index. So I think it was like a professor or someone at some point in time mentioned this, that you'll notice that doesn't matter where you are in the world, the 6pm news will always have a segment on the weather, which obviously everyone knows that, (laughs) but it'll always have a segment. (laughs) What's its predictive power though? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That is true. If it's really hot, the stock market goes up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I'll always have that section on the stock market. And they do seem to follow each other. So I don't know if there's subliminal messaging there. But anyway. (laughs) And, you know, in Australia, there's always that little segment. And I watch today. So um, a fan of Koshi and his little segment on this. I'm more of an Alan Collar kind of girl myself. But yeah. Where they really break down. So like, you know, across the world, these are the different indices and this is how they've performed. So for Australia, that's really the all ordinaries or which is like abbreviated because us Aussies love a good abbreviation to all odds where it really, you know, describes what has happened at that particular point in time. But I think that is also contributing to that fixation on the home index because you are unintentionally comparing how you went the Australian equity market versus how all these other international um, indices went. But if you look at the Australian equity market, it is really highly concentrated. So if we take the all ordinaries, which represents, you know, the top 500 largest companies on the Australian equity market, if you look at that a bit deeper, the top 10 stocks accounts for roughly 37% of the total index. So that's a huge portion of the market is dependent on 10 stocks really what they do really impacts how the market performs and if you drill that down a little bit further what that 10 stocks comprise of is there's four of the big four Australian banks there's Macquarie Bank and then there's you know some material stocks like BHP and Fortescue so if you're 
as an investor, if you have a large home bias to Australia, you are taking quite a significant bet at a country level, as well as a sector level potentially, and then as well mm. as the stock level. So it's just so concentrated. Oh, I think that's such a pertinent point. And the other thing too, if you look at market capitalization globally, right, Australia's a minnow, like we're two or three yeah. percent of the global, you know, market cap. So if you're just focusing in on Australia, mm. it's a very small pond. And I think your point's absolutely bang on in terms of um, you know, our technology sector, exactly. it's nothing compared to the US, for example. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's other sectors that you can get exposure to um, internationally that you just can't get here, like luxury goods, yep. for example. It's just not a sector that, that we have. And if you look at the, the top 10 companies in the world, they're dominated by America and mm-hmm. a couple of Chinese um, companies, yep. actually. So if you're just focusing in on Australia, yeah. Yeah, you're going to have some unintended consequences in terms of are you getting the diversification that you need and are you missing out on some great opportunities to um, invest in some companies and sectors that you just can't access here in Australia? I was just going to add to that. I think uh, that's really interesting in terms of looking at the composition of those companies in Australia. Jamami said, I think, banks and materials because we've also spoken about a huge trend for people wanting to invest responsibly. So that looks at things like, you know, ESG, which is environmental social governance, investing for impact, which is another step in the direction of actually investing for return. We all want that, but also trying to make a tangible, positive impact on society and the environment. And if you look at the top stocks in the ASX, it's quite hard for individuals to actually invest with purpose and impact and from an ESG perspective as well. Not to say that you can't find that within the Australian index, you absolutely can, but I think by, um, you know, suffering home bias and just investing in the things that are familiar, you're potentially giving up the power of making a difference with your investments as well. So I think that's another theme that jumps out at me when I think about the Australian market and some of the trade-offs between investing with more of a global vision, I think is an interesting one as well. And the other thing that I found when I was sort of looking into this in a bit more detail is I found what I'm calling hyper home bias that actually, yeah. that's my own term. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's not a, <laughs> yeah, I'm just making up my own words now. Um, <laughs> but um, look, this is an older study. So it was done in 1999. So it's 21 years old. So I want to sort of call that out as a, a starting point because obviously a lot has changed in the world in 21 years. But there's um, a couple of academics called Koval and Makowitz. Sorry, <laughs> very hard words to, um, you know, but what they did is they, they actually had a look at fund managers. So obviously, I, I sort of tend to think of this home bias occurs with individual investors, but what they found is that fund managers suffer from this as well. Mm-hmm. And um, this hyper home bias, my new terminology, <laughs> what their research found is that fund managers favoured investing in companies that were located closest to their office. Wow. And so this is kind of moving from home bias to sort of local bias. <laughs> um, so home bias on steroids. Yeah. But yeah. what they did find, and again, just keeping in mind this was 21 years ago, is that it did generate a positive performance outcome. Mm. And so they speculated, was this due to an information advantage by being on the ground and being so closely located to these companies? Mm. Were they getting insights more rapidly? And maybe they were back 21 years ago. Mm. But but what I sort of say, want to put to you guys is that, you know, because of technology has advanced so much during this time and information is far more readily available than if you look back to 21 years ago, 
if such an advantage did exist by being locally located to these companies and you were getting a sort of an insight in terms of what was happening with those companies, does that advantage still exist now? And I would suspect it's probably largely eroded. We are more interconnected than ever. Definitely. Um, and so I just thought, you know, it's good to round it out. Like there are some alternative viewpoints in terms of this home bias. So I was looking at this, I thought I really wanted to just raise it, but I do um, suspect that whilst that may have been the case 21 years ago, that that would not really be the case um, any longer. And then I think the only other thing I wanted to raise is as well is that that also talks to, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why people have a home bias is because it's easy to access the company. So not only do mm. are they familiar to, mm, to us, totally. but they're actually easier to access. But again, with technology, that's kind of not, you know, necessarily the case anymore mm-hmm, either. True. Like it's much easier to be able to access international markets than, than it's ever been. Yeah. yeah. And also policy perspective, because in Australia we have franking credits, which I was yeah. thinking yeah. is something we should maybe spend a minute talking about as well, because that does incentivize you to invest in Australia because you're receiving a tax rebate uh, based on the tax that has already been paid by the company on the dividend you receive. And for low income earners that have a low tax rate, they can receive quite yeah. a good rebate on that. And a lot of retirees actually do leverage franking credits in that respect. So I think there's a policy element as well that encourages people to invest locally that I think is an Australian phenomenon as well. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And it also accounts for why Australian property is also on the other side, that policy factor, the fact that there's negative gearing has and also low interest rates on, you know, um, monetary policy perspective as well. That has really seen people move to the Australian property market over, I would say, a period of you know, 20 to 30 years. And that has catapulted that market significantly because it was, there are incentives to invest in that area. Um, But as a byproduct of that, portfolios are really concentrated. Yeah. People are doubling down on that risk that we talked about earlier. If you kind of look at someone's whole portfolio, they could be taking on a significant amount of risk and doubling down on effectively what would be a bet on the Australian economy. Because if you work as an individual for an Australian company, then your human capital is dependent on the Australian economy or that uh, that um, particular company doing well. Totally right. And then if your property, and that could be your primary residence or your investment properties are also in Australia, then you've got that level of risk. And then if your whole portfolio is then concentrated in Australian equities, it's just like, it's just a huge bet. And I think it's an unintentional one because people just don't realise that that's what they're ineffectively doing. And I think this kind of is a nice pivot, which I know we hate that word because everyone's overusing it in business. Um, but it is a nice segue into probably that's the, <laughs> that is the problem people you know, might not know that they're facing, but what is the solution? Like, now that you know that this is a problem, what can you do to kind of counteract that or, you know, solve that? But don't you think it comes back to education again? I think all of these episodes and conversations we have do link into this concept of education around investing, education around your retirement, your super financial literacy. Maybe people don't realise they can access 
a global investment portfolio to complement their Australian investment portfolio relatively easily through either some of the structures that are out there or through having some uh, financial advice. So I think it, for me, I totally understand why people gravitate to what they know. I think that makes uh, total sense. And as I said, guilty of doing it myself. But I think if we can help to shine a light on that and raise the standards of education around that, maybe people would be more aware that you can have, you don't have to have all of your eggs in one basket. You can have a diversified portfolio relatively easily through your superannuation fund or what it might might be um, and to take ownership over how they allocate yeah. that. I think that's what comes to my mind anyway. Yeah, and I think the other thing that um, I found is that it sounds like people have this home bias as well because we're quite optimistic about our local companies and economy and that kind of makes sense because we want you know, um, to do well, we, we want our economy to do well. And so, again, another bias that sort of comes in apart from that home bias is that sort of um, that overconfidence that we're going to do really well locally is what I'm trying mm, to that's say. That's a good point. And I think that attributing past success as well, like we, we're known as that lucky country um, yes. that we have done so well and there was like a huge, obviously pre-COVID, a huge bull run of equity markets, property markets. We just were doing so well that there's yep. that overconfidence that it'll be like this forever. Like we'll just keep mm. building on That's that success. That's recency bias, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like you basically so take the biases. most recent information. There's so many biases, yeah. that's right, but it all sort of stems yeah. back. But I think your whole opening um, piece on the patriotism, gosh, I can't speak today, being patriotic. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just an Australian phenomena, it is like global. So totally. you look at investors globally and yes. they have a home bias and yeah. the home bias Definitely. is you know different like levels of home bias depending on the mm-hmm. individual country and perhaps the most patriotic of all are the Japanese. <laughs> I don't know if you looked at the Japanese stats, but something like 80% of Japanese investors invest into local Japanese companies, yet Japan is only 9% market cap. So they are super concentrated, but it's actually a lot better than it used to be. Apparently it used to be up as high as 98%. Wow. So it's not just an Australian phenomena. It is a a global phenomena. You look at it in the US and the UK, it's it's around the world. And so it's definitely a thing. Yeah. Um, it's a human phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Think, yeah. Is what we're saying. It's just part of being human, that familiarity. And, and also, as you say, like the, it's always, there's that quote, it's nicer to think that the sun will come up in the morning. Yeah. That's what I was thinking mm. of when you were talking about this wanting to believe that things will do well. As human beings, why would we want to think anything else? Yes. Really? Exactly. True, true. <laughs> There are so many resources out there and we've gone through all of them. Like my favourite is definitely the ASIC um, website, Money Smart, love it. Like (laughs) um, can't rave about those sources of information that are free out there. I think there is an element of individuals just, you know, being excited about learning about all this stuff. And then, you know, we're all not necessarily experts in this space as individuals. Sorry, obviously we work in the industry, so we'd like to think of ourselves as experts. Um, We're still learning. learning. And I think there's that need to, you can self-educate, but then utilising that knowledge and getting some help from a financial advisor. But once you know the jargon, and I think we can all say the industry is swamped with jargon, but as you start to self-educate and you can kind of understand the terms and you can go to your financial advisor and say, you know, whatever you need to do for your particular circumstances, but you at least have the 
the um, the language to kind of navigate that space. And one thing with the whole issue of diversification, because I think at the heart of home bias is is really that lack of diversification. You mentioned Cassie that analogy that is so heavily used in the industry about like not putting all your eggs in one basket. There was one thing that I was thinking of that might resonate with people a little bit more as an alternative analogy for thinking of it is you've got your favourite coffee shop that you go to that, you know, the outcome of going to the coffee shop is getting your coffee (laughs) and starting your day. And you build up that affinity for that particular coffee shop because you like the barista, you know, they have a good chat and a little bit of banter in the morning. The brew's great. There's all these factors that drive you towards that one particular coffee shop. But if something happens to that coffee shop, you might not be able to get your morning coffee, which is the outcome that you are after. So are there, and you know, for most people, this pandemic has meant that they weren't either able to access their coffee shop or their coffee shop has disappeared. So that's the risk of Mm. um, not being able to achieve your outcome, but outcome being coffee. But you can really spread that around by, I don't know, making, you know, having your own Nespresso machine or having multiple coffee sources. I think you guys get where I'm going with this. <laughs> no, no, good example. But, you know, you can still achieve the same outcome, but you've reduced the risk of not being able to achieve that outcome by having alternative sources. And I guess that's what we're trying to say from all of this is, you know, you can still get a good return um, or have a good chance of getting a good return, but by spreading that risk and, you know, getting your brew from different sources. 